This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Pink House Foundation and listeners like you. This is WMPG. I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine. And this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today, we start a new series on depression in the workplace. Prior to researching this series, when I thought about people leaving work on disability, I first thought of physical injuries, like maybe from back strain or repetitive motion. But I was amazed to learn that the number one cause of people leaving work for medical reasons, other than pregnancy, is actually depression. Not only here in the U.S., but around the world. And yet, despite how common a problem this is, we still don't know how to talk about this at work. Is it something you should share with your boss or your coworkers? Or will bringing it up make you look bad? In this series, I'll be taking a look at what it's like to live with depression when you're trying to work and asking what employers are doing to reduce depression and the stigma that it carries. I wanted to begin this series by talking with someone who works at an EAP. An EAP is an Employee Assistance Program, which is a voluntary work-based program that offers free short-term counseling and referrals to employees who are struggling. My guest is Jeff Smith, He's a psychotherapist and a social worker who started the EAP at L.L. Bean in 1994. Prior to that, he worked as a therapist at employee assistance programs at Digital Equipment Corporation, Anheuser-Busch, and Mass General Hospital. And he also has a private psychotherapy practice. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Jeff. Thanks, Anne. It's nice to be here. So how does depression become a disability? What is it about the experience of depression that makes it hard to work? Well, there's a whole bunch of things, starting with the fact that uh, if you look at some of the criteria for a diagnosis of depression, right there you start to get clues. So among other things, there can be depressed mood, which is going to make it hard to get motivated to go to work and do a good job. There's probably going to be a loss of interest and pleasure and things that normally you'd be interested in. So even if you're really devoted to your job and excited about it, suddenly it, along with probably everything else in your life, is going to fall flat. In addition, people often think of depression to the extent that they ponder it as a mood disorder, but it has very significant cognitive impairments. So for people who are broadly defined knowledge workers, if they work on software or sit in front of spreadsheets trying to figure things out. If they get depressed, they're going to be struggling with impaired concentration. They're not going to be able to focus. Their short-term memory is going to go down the tubes. And they're going to have trouble even with pretty minor decision-making. There's absenteeism. There are the safety risks. If somebody's driving a forklift and they're in the state of mind, it's not so good be pretty dangerous. So or a school bus, bus, even worse. Or a school bus. I'm struck, you know, listening to you review the diagnostic criteria of depression, which is something I do in any intake with any new patient, as I'm sure you do as well. It's so clearly a neurological illness. You know, it's clearly a brain illness when you have trouble with decision-making and concentration and, and the ability to feel pleasure and motivation. Um, do you have a role in the company that you work at as a sort of psychoeducational role to teach people about depression as an illness like any other? Yes. It's not the first thing necessarily that I did when I started, but within 
a few years, and largely through lucky circumstances, we did a massive company-wide education effort on depression. We had more than 4,000 people go through these depression education sessions. And it was, so it was a really big effort. What was the main message you were trying to give? So we were trying to talk about it as an illness, as something that happens commonly, that there's a really very significant prevalence to depression. There's a lot of people walking around or kind of walking wounded with it. That it was uh, what it looked like so that people could sort of sit there and think, hmm, some of this describes me or my spouse or, oh, I felt like that three years ago. Some help would have been nice. And then we talked about help and what that looked like. And what impact did this have at the company? So we'd been seeing at that point about, I think, 240 people a year in face-to-face encounters, counseling. And we immediately shot up to 300. I think it also just made the whole matter of depression more discussable. So this question about whether an individual employee should actually talk to their boss if they're depressed is a complicated one. And I'm guessing that this is one that you counsel people on not infrequently. What is your kind of hard-earned wisdom about whether it's wise or not to share with your employer that you are struggling with depression? It's very hard to generalize, Anne. It depends on the relationship between that boss and the employee. It depends on the culture of the company as a whole. It depends on the boss's knowledge of resources and their feelings and attitudes on the topic. And that can vary even within a very progressive culture. What what we do with supervisors, let me address it from that side, is we encourage them This is really an important part of what EAPs do. We encourage them to keep their eye on the performance and how the employee is doing and to be sensitive and attuned to that. And if they see problems or a pattern of problems developing over time, we want them to address that with the employee in a timely, sensitive, kind, but clear fashion. What we don't want them to do is delve and try to become diagnosticians and to do too much inquiring about what might be going on in the employee's life that might be affecting things. So if they're having a performance management discussion with an employee, we want them to review what their concerns are, talk about what things ought to look like, talk about what the get well plan is going to be, and then say something like, now, Anne, I don't know if there's anything going on in your personal life or outside life that could be affecting your job performance here, and certainly that kind of thing happens all the time. So if it is, I don't need to know about that, but I want you to know that we've got some resources that can really help you. They're free. They're confidential. I won't know whether or not you make use of them unless you want to let me know, but that's up to you. And... um, to make a referral to the Employee Assistance Program. That said, at L.L. Bean, a lot of employees and their leaders or supervisors are friends, often they're pals, and often employees do confide in their supervisors, and that works out just fine. 
And the supervisor then says, gee, it sounds like you're going through a lot. Your marriage is a little tough and you're feeling depressed. We've got this program. I see. So when you say a referral from a supervisor, you don't mean a like mandated, you will do this. You mean more of a, this is a resource you can avail yourself of. Yeah, we don't do mandated uh, involuntary referrals for anything. Some companies and some EAPs do that. We've steered very clear of that. So the guidelines that you're laying out where a supervisor is sort of offering support but not delving, it feels to me like a very respectful stance, especially Mm -hmm. because the supervisor has power. And so it's really kind of inappropriate to use that power to kind of ask someone to become even more vulnerable. Right. I'm curious, though, if there's something about how much we tiptoe about this subject that actually makes depression worse. I I wonder... Mm -hmm. In our efforts to be so careful and respectful of each other, do we contribute to a kind of silence um, and a culture of stigma that may actually uh, make it harder to get help for depression or may even make the shame of depression worse? We're threading a bit of a line here between employees not experiencing supervisors as intrusive or because of that power differential, if they're asked a question, they either have to spill the beans on themselves or take a stand and say, none of your business, which, of course, they can do. And, in fact, at times that's the right thing to do. On the other hand, we do want people to be able to talk about this. So the other side of this coin is that we frequently have supervisors, as they make the referral to the program, say something like, and I've used it myself. And I think you'll find it really helpful. That's wonderful. And we've had people say that at all levels of the company. Because it's interesting, isn't it, the double standard, like if I was going out on disability because I'd injured my back or I was having surgery, you know, that would be pretty public information, partly because it's not necessarily? Not necessarily. Now, if you had your leg in a cast, (laughs) that would be public because it would be obvious. But most companies try to draw a pretty tight boundary as to why somebody is out on disability. And that is a transaction that occurs between the disability insurer and the employee. And what the company gets in its purest form here is a note saying, Anne will be out of work for the next six weeks. We expect her to be back in mid-March. And if there are any workplace accommodations and restrictions that are needed, we'll let you know. Right. I'm thinking about I've written many letters for people, uh, filled out the Family Medical Leave Act forms and medical leave of absence, you know, letters. And it's always very, very cryptic. It's always so-and-so, you know, needs to go out on leave for medical reasons. And that's it um, to protect their privacy. So in a way, it kind of makes sense to me that Actually, you have to be private about all of it because in some ways that's much more protective. Mm-hmm. If you're only private about the mental health things, then everyone knows it's a mental health reason. Exactly. Exactly. It blows the whistle on that. Yeah. And it's for employee comfort as much as anything. So you have a long career of doing EAP work. You know, This is what you've been doing at four different places over many years. Do you feel in your role, is there a tension you know, a business is about the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Any, And I'm just talking now broadly about sure. any of the places you've sure. been. This is not specific to Ella Bean. Is there a tension? You know, I did some reading about EAPs to prepare, and what I sense is, that, you know, what are the signs? One article I read said, what are the signs of a good EAP? And 
And it's really about saving the company money. You know, you're getting people back to work. It's reductions in tardiness, reductions in absenteeism, you know, shorter periods of disability. And is it ever uncomfortable for you to feel like a pressure to kind of get that person patched up and back to work because of productivity pressures as opposed to, say, like maybe they need longer? Or, you know, I don't know if you're in the middle of that or if you're... If no, I'm not in the middle of that at all. And actually... I mean, I think the nice thing about doing healthcare inside a company is that you can cost justify just about anything you want to do because you look at the expenses of depression and it just screams out to companies, do something about this, treat this. It's the biggest healthcare cost for companies. It's bigger than cancer. It's bigger than heart disease. It's huge. So to your question, I don't find conflicts of interest and I'm free to either encourage an employee to get back to work or I sometimes airlift people out. If I'm seeing somebody in a very responsible position where they're the only one doing what they're doing and their functioning is sinking because they're depressed, my job is to actually get them out of work as best I can. I mean, it's voluntary, okay? But what I know and what I'll tell them is, look, I know you are loyal to your team and you don't want to let them down. But you're really hurting yourself if you stay here. This is going to be a hit on your career because as long as you're in the company working, people have to be thinking about your performance and the kind of job you're doing. And as soon as you go out of work, that stops, and you can get better and come back and help your team even more. And sometimes I have to do a real sales job to get somebody to go out and take care of themselves. So I don't try to keep people at work no matter what. Because it doesn't reflect badly on you, it sounds like. Nope. No. Nope. So that's freeing. And do, do employees ever feel like they don't know if they can trust you? Like if you're really there for them versus they're, you know, who, who's you're being be paid enough. by the boss? You know, do they ever, are they ever wary of? Very rarely. At this point, we have really good press. But in general, for an EAP starting out, it would be a concern, of course. There are ways to dir- address that directly, and we do. So... Huh. Actually, well, when we sit, so when we do our presentations around the company, we talk about the boundaries and the confidentiality. When we meet with somebody individually, we probably do something a little like what you do in a private practice office where you talk about the limits of confidentiality, or at least you give people paperwork on that. We both give them paperwork, and then if they want to start, I say, hold on just a second, let me do my spiel on confidentiality. And then I go into detail about it, and I talk about the fact that I'm not, I talk about the usual exceptions that we counselors have, suicide, homicide, threat of. But then I say we're independent contractors, and what we talk about stays between us. It doesn't go in any company medical or personnel record. It doesn't go back to your boss. It doesn't go back to the CEO. It doesn't go back to anybody in any form. Do you have any questions about that? And then I usually, me- I always mention we're independent contractors too. And they just look relieved and start talking at that point. Yeah. And I've never been, in any of the places I've worked, I've never been pressured to cough up information. Not it's once. really interesting. Huh. So people are very serious about that. Re- yeah, really people are really, re- I've been asked accidentally by somebody who's forgotten, n- relatively new to knowing about EAPs. And they'll say, oh, Jeff, by the way, did Ann ever come to see you? And I'll say, well, 
I know I sound like the CIA, but I can neither confirm nor deny. And they laugh and chuckle, and I laugh, and they say, oh, that's right, I forgot about the confidentiality. It's part of the culture now. I've been reading in the press recently that suicide rates are going up among white men, <clears throat> particularly in the age of sort of 45 to 65, um, really significantly. And there's a lot of people who have different theories about why this is. But, but one of them certainly is financial pressures. And um, do you, have you experienced, are you seeing that at Alabine, that the rates of depression are actually going up? I have no idea. I have no idea, actually. Uh, you don't track I, that. I, well, uh, no, I don't. We we look at the people we're seeing and what percentage of them present with some degree of depressive symptoms, and that's remained pretty constant. And it would take a researcher to kind of poll people in the company and see if the rate of depression amongst employees has increased. I've certainly had the feeling since 9-11 and in the aughts that rates of anxiety and insecurity and overall at times pervasive stress have increased not just in the company but in the world. And, But the data and the research you're talking is really there that suicide rates, white men, I think there's a lot of feeling of disenfranchisement Franchisement by a lot of white men and job insecurity. And men in this culture are really wired around their careers and their jobs. And you take that away or flatline it, and these fellows are in trouble because they may not have much else. It, this gets into the whole sort of men in depression thing. And Terry Reel's book, um, I Don't Want to Talk About It, you know, that which is the best title possible for a book on men in depression. I don't want to talk about it. It's perfect. It reminds me, I know a therapist who does prison work with uh, male offenders, and they do groups, and she's in group a lot with them. And she says they talk a lot there about the F word, feelings. And it's as bad as the other F word. <laughs> and so you may have men who have uh, a whole range of vulnerable feelings happening and they can't talk about them and that's probably going to find its way into depressed states and I think it's even harder I think for senior executives I'm not really talking L.L. Bean here I read an article in psychology today that was about 10 years old and it was talking about um, depression in uh, the executive suites and it had some pretty shocking data and part of what it talked about is there's a set of pretty um, successful and aggressive executives who are driven by real flaws in their basic sense of self, real wounds and damage from childhood. And the way, the only way they have of dealing with that and trying to, in some way, um, ease that is success after success after success, but you're only as good as your last deal. And eventually you run out your string and there you are in a clinic at manager for executives and you're probably in worse shape than most depressed patients there because you've pushed longer and tried to do um, 
even as the pain increased, you just work harder and eventually you crash. In your experience, what are the kinds of jobs that tend to make employees the most unhappy? Well, if you want to design a job that's stressful, you take one that is high demand, has a lot of responsibility, and a job at the same time with low control, being monitored, for example, where you don't have control over how it's done. A job that's just high demand by itself can be okay if it's high control. Trauma department surgeon, high demand, life and death, tons of training, tons of resources at his or her fingertips, and they kind of rock and roll, right? So that is stressful, but not in a debilitating way. I'm curious, do you have a role, or could you have a role in any company that you worked in to make recommendations about things a company could do that might increase, you know, employee happiness, whether that might be anything from like needing exposure to natural light or needing flex schedules or needing a, you know, some ability to go out and play a game together for 20 minutes and then come back to a problem. Are there things that you see that really contribute to building morale or or making people happier at work? I think the company I'm currently at has a very big focus on that, that there's sort of real focus on wellness programs and supporting people and taking care of themselves. There's really splendid fitness centers there that people can use, and in some cases I think their family members can use. I think all that does bounce against the incredible competitive pressures that are out there. So in general at companies, again, I'm not speaking of well-being, but 10 years ago you'd hear a lot about work-life balance. I've got clients from other companies, and they don't hear that phrase much anymore. It's all about work. There is no balance. (laughs) Well, you know, and then you add technology where you're always on. Always on. And that evaporates. And you sync that up with globalization. So when you and I were talking on the phone, it was not just rates of growth of depression in the U.S. It's worldwide. So what is going on in the world such that depression is increasing around the world? That's the $64 question. And Do you I, have any theories, Jeff? Well, I think, yes. So the answer is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, but we must, we're all wondering about that in we, a way. Well, yeah. I think the rate of change is staggering. I think all kinds of things have been disrupted, including our communities and our social connections and our connectedness. We're entering the era of mass migrations, some of them forced. There's all kinds of resource instability. It's just stress after stress after stress. Traditional ways of life going down the tubes. So you name endemic, I mean, you can start doing a very dark list of things. Mm -hmm. But I think those are the ingredients for high levels of stress. And And huge degrees of, I know, income inequality. Income, yes. Huge. Yeah. So you yeah. can start to also think about learned helplessness and w- as one of the models for depression. And if people find that their efforts to help themselves 
especially get out of bad situations, um, don't work, and that happens repeatedly, you get something that looks a lot like depression. And is that something like, is that what's going on with these uh, suicidal white men? Is that what's going on around the world in some cases? People are losing control of aspects of their life. We've talked about efforts to destigmatize depression in the workplace. We've talked about education campaigns. We've talked about ways that we try to help people understand it's an illness. And we understand that destigmatizing it so people get help earlier means that they won't be as depressed as long and may not be as depressed as badly. So there's a real wish, I think, on my part and on your part to have people get help and talk to people when they're feeling depressed. And for a long time, people have thought that the best way to do that was by stressing again and again. It's just like diabetes. It's just like asthma. It's a physical illness. But we've been kind of singing that song for a long time, and there's still so much stigma about depression. Do you have any other experiences or any other approaches that you take at the company that help people feel like it's safe to get help for this? We go back and forth between targeting specific kinds of problems, depression, domestic abuse, and, and this is more what we're doing now, trying to destigmatize the whole idea of getting help for anything. And that's more what we're doing right now. So when we're visible and go to a staff meeting and talk for three or four minutes about what we do, we mention six or seven common problems that people might have. Depression, anxiety, family difficulties, aging parents, one of them with dementia, getting a bad medical diagnosis. These are all the kinds of things that happen to us, and we're here to help you with that. So we're free, we're confidential, and I repeat the various qualities of the EAP. So what we're focusing on right now is people getting help from us or whoever for whatever is troubling them and just to make that process easier and less fraught, less shameful. And we'll say, look, life gets everybody. And it's true when you think about it. If you live even for not very long, stuff happens, life happens. And I think once people start to think about, about it in that way, it's hopefully a little easier for them to say, yeah, life does get everybody when I stop and think about it and look around. And there's some help out there. We also are talking more and more about coaching rather than counseling. It's a bit of an end run, but a colleague of mine started an EAP over at IDEX, and she's talking all about coaching, and people are pounding on the door. Much different framework. Many of us have had coaches in high school or college. They help you accomplish goals. Not bad. We do both, coaching and counseling. You know, you mentioned earlier about men and depression, and I think about, you know, the jokes about men. Us not... men love coaching. Right, exactly. Men counseling, don't... forget about it. I might have to talk about my feelings. Men don't even want to ask for direction. <laughs> talk about not asking for help. I know, I know. Whereas coaching is like this much more macho feel to it. That's right. <laughs> Jeff Smith, thank you so much for being my guest and for coming to talk to me about depression in the workplace. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Anne. It's been a pleasure. I always like to leave people with a couple of resources. And you mentioned Terry Reel's book, I Don't Want to Talk About It. Are there any other resources that you would recommend for people who are struggling with mental health issues at their work or even with a difficult employee or employer? 
I think uh, one more book on, there's a bunch of books, I think, that are kind of memoirs about depression, just to mention. Andrew Solomon's The Noonday Demon is a, a good read and really uh, just conveys a sense of what it's like, as does William Styron's uh, Darkness Visible. Or you can go to your local EAP. Right. That's the resource. Yeah. Find out if your company has one. Probably does. If you want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com, where you can listen to all of our past shows, including earlier series on living with mental illness. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. You can also leave us a comment. I'd love to hear from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor.